Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Um, Adam Sud, thank you so much for spending some of your afternoon with us today. I'll quickly uh, introduce you and then um, love to spend some time getting to know you better for our community. But um, Adam, you're a behavioral wellness and nutrition expert, an international speaker, and the founder and CEO of Plant-Based for Positive Change, which is a nonprofit that's done some really interesting proprietary research into how nutrition impacts addiction and mental health. And you and I got to spend some time in person recently, and it was um, really like just a breath of fresh air to hear your thoughts on addiction of all forms. And I think all of us are dealing with something around uh, that, that category at different points in our life. And so I'm really excited to unpack it and get into it because you speak so eloquently about the philosophies and, and the pragmatic sort of uh, ways that we can improve our, our lives. So with that, um, Adam, thanks again for spending some time with us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Matt. I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. And I agree, it was a great uh, pleasure to to meet you uh, in Sedona and and spend a couple of days with you. And and I, I left feeling the same way. I was like, we're, we're definitely going to be spending more time together. Um, yeah, and, and selfishly, a lot of it is because I've I've I very much have an addictive personality. I've I've uh, you know dealt with my own obsessions and compulsions at different points in my life and. And we all have our own burdens, whether they be physical or or mental. And so, uh, a lot of what you shared with me helped me personally. I, I really mean that. And uh, um, and I hope and I'm sure your comments will help a lot of people listening today. Um, so, with that, I think there's no better place to start than the beginning. Your story, wherever you want to pick that up from. Uh, you know, you have some amazing before and after. Photos. I hope people will Google your name, Adam Sud S U D. Um, but tell us, like I say, if you want to start at birth, that's great. If you want to start somewhere later on in your journey, that's cool too. But just help us get to know Adam and how you came to be a, an expert in these domains. Yeah. So I'll give kind of like kind of the, the faster version of it. But I think it's important to know that I, I was born in Texas in 1982. Uh, I am uh, a sixth or seventh generation Houstonian. So uh, I, I grew up both Texan and Jewish. So that means I was eating burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes from birth. So it's like a standard American diet, <laughs> cowboy boots, wearing, with the, wearing cowboy boots with chutzpah. That's what I like to call it. And I, I just want to like emphasize that, that I grew up in two very, very um, uh, strong cultures. They were both kind of important. Um, everything that I looked at, everything that I engaged in, was about being a Texan and about being a Jew. And so my parents did it. My friends did it. My friend's parents did it. And so, you know, this was kind of the, the way that I thought the world was. Uh, I thought that, you know, you ate fried chicken on Friday nights. I thought that, you know, you, you had meat on every plate. Uh, and, and, and to be fair, I want everyone to understand, I, I had the best childhood imaginable. I really did. And it's weird because I'm going, to, I'm going to, in a little bit, tell you about how difficult it was. But I want you to know how much I really did I really did love so much of it. I had a dad who taught me how to play every single sport under the sun. I had a mom who inspired my imagination. I was born with a tr- with my best friend, so I was I'm an identical twin. 
born with a best friend. And then a few years later, got another one with my little sister. Used to ride my bike to and from school. But by the time I was about 10 years old, there seemed to be a bit of a shift in how I started to engage in the world. And that was because I want everyone to understand my dad, by the time my dad was 25, he would lose his dad to colon cancer. Um, and from what mm -hmm. I understand, because it's, you know, and I don't, I, it may be bad on, maybe on me, but I don't ask my dad to, to, to talk about this a lot. But from everything that I understand, from when my grandfather, who I never, who I never met, uh, was diagnosed to the point that he died, it was, it was not a very long time. And so later on, my dad would go on to lose his mom uh, in an accident after surviving cancer and breast uh, and a heart attack. Uh, and then he would lose his sister to uncontrolled diabetes and she went into heart failure and she passed away. So I want you to understand my dad has a very intense um, response to witnessing someone who he loves engaging in behaviors that he perceives might take them away from him. And so by the time I was 10 years old, like I mentioned, my grand, my grandfather, who I never met had died, you know, years, years ago. Um, my grandmother, my dad's mom had survived a heart attack, had survived breast cancer. And I started to, I guess, put on weight. And I remember running into the house one, one, one summer afternoon in a bathing suit. And my dad just started criticizing my body. You know, how, what, what are you doing? Why do you, how in the world do you already have love handles? What are you doing? Why are you like this? These are the kind of messages I would get constantly. And I would kind of run to my mom for, to the rescue. And, and she would kind of excuse my dad for, oh, you know, he's just saying those things. And no, don't, you know, that's just your dad. And so I began to believe what was happening was my dad was letting me know that there are conditions upon which the world will and won't accept you. And if you don't meet those conditions, not only will the world not accept you, but even your parents don't accept you. Not what he said exactly, but it's kind of the message I received. And more so than the constant daily criticisms about my body and my behavior, my dad would come in every morning running eight miles and he'd look like Captain America, six pack abs, the whole deal. And he would walk right past me at breakfast as I was getting ready to go to school. And without question, he would ask me how many of the sausages I had, how many of this I had, and then he would criticize his own body in front of me. And I started to believe, my goodness, I'm not even allowed to eat the food my parents serve me. And I can't even look like my dad and love myself because he just said he doesn't love himself. If looking like that is not worthy of acceptance and I look like this, number one, how in the world am I ever going to solve this problem? And number two, how shameful must I be to be seen with him? And so I started to, to hide from the world. I started to engage in closet eating behavior, started to act up in school. In fact, I was acting up so much that they took me to a doctor. I got diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, essentially, now I had another doctor, a medical professional, confirming to me that not only are you an overweight, unacceptable person, we found out something else about you that doesn't work properly, that's unacceptable, and that people would rather never see you as. And But this time, we're gonna, we're, it's so bad, we're going to have to medicate you. By the time I was 12 years old, I was a medicated kid. I was ashamed of my body, and now I was afraid of people finding out that I was taking a, a prescription medication. And it wrecked my self-esteem. The only thing that I had going for me that I really liked was I was a theater kid. 
and I, and I really liked it. I think there might be something to be said for the idea that I like to hide in the personalities of fake people. Um, and I auditioned uh, for a high school called the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. They get like 600 kids audition. They take like 60 of them. And I, and I actually got in. It's a very difficult thing to do. And then my dad tells me that we're moving from Houston to Austin, Texas, right before I start high school. So again, the world that I wanted, my dad said I couldn't have. And I, I really started to become very angry with my dad. I really, I really resented the hell out of him. And we move into Austin, Texas. And I go to a big Texas football high school and I don't know anybody. And I start experiencing very, very intense bullying because it's, it's true. I was an awkward kid. I was a nerd. I was, I was weird. I was overweight. I was all the things that you would, you would expect people to say. I was a theater geek. Um, and this is the early, this, sorry, this is the mid to late nineties. So the advocacy around bullying isn't the same as it is today. And I experienced physical bullying so badly that about three fourths of the way through my freshman year, when my parents would drop me off at school, the assistant principals would have to get eyes on me to make sure that I made it into the school safely. And so mm. at about this time, my prescription from Ritalin had been changed to a new medication that, called Adderall. And I think most people know what Adderall is. It's a stimulant based medication used for the treatment of ADHD and other conditions. And I, I, I was supposed to take a dose in the morning and a dose halfway through school. And I remember taking my second dose in the middle of class and walk out of the classroom. And as I do that, one of the kids, the kind of the bigger jock guys who would routinely make my life a living hell, he grabbed a hold of my shirt and he yanked me to the side. And then he put his arm around my neck. But this wasn't in a hurtful way. This was more of a, hey, buddy, how's it going kind of way. And he says to me, Adam, listen, I want you to understand all that bullying we've been doing, that's over. All right, you have to understand you're the freshman, you're, you're new to this, you know, the school, no one knows you, it's a hazing thing. Listen, you, it's over. And, and I've told the guys, it's over with. And in fact, we want to make it up to you. So why don't you come to the party on Friday night? Um, here's the address and bring your Adderall. And now look, I may have been all of the things I mentioned before. I may have been a theater geek. I may have been a, an overweight loser. I may have been a nerd. I may have been all the things that everyone called me, but I was not stupid. And I knew exactly what was taking place. And I felt unbelievable relief because what had been presented to me was a reality that I may have figured out a way to feel a little bit safer in a life that felt completely unsafe. And so I went to this party and I brought Adderall and I was like, please let this not be a prank. Please let them not bring me here to beat me up and take my medicine. And I show up and they welcome me with open arms and I give them the Adderall and I take Adderall as a recreational drug for the first time. I actually didn't know up until then that that was a thing kids did. And I'm going to tell you that the minute that it started to take effect inside of my body, it was like, boom. It was like... It was as if the universe came down and gave me a big hug and said, we've got you covered. To say I was hooked is not an accurate description. And I want to be clear, I was not hooked to the substance. I was hooked to what had just been delivered with ease and repeatability. Okay, Adderall is amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. And I don't say that to demonize it. I say it simply to be accurate. So all of a sudden, I have no hunger drive. I mean, I do not care about eating food whatsoever. And I have unbelievable energy and confidence for the first time. 
I'm now able to walk up and start talking to people. I feel like a superhero. I feel like just this unbelievable amount of energy and power and, and, and confidence that I'd never experienced in my life. Other people seem to like me for the first time. I, and, and, uh, no misconceptions. I know why they are acting like they like me, but it's fine because it looks, it looks so much like what I wanted. I was willing to accept it. People liked me. I started to like me. Found a way to lose weight started to engage in study habits that started to make my dad proud of me for the first time. I know it's, I know it wasn't real. I know it wasn't authentic, but it looked enough like it. It looked enough like it that I wanted more of it. And so what you have to understand is I would get up every single day and I would wake up into a body that didn't feel like a safe, secure, or hopeful place to be. I'd be in the presence of parents that with all the best intentions in the world, didn't always feel like a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. I would go to school where physically and emotionally, it did not feel like a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. And then I would use, and it would relieve me of the burden of being present in that life. In fact, it seemed to solve all of the problems that were making my life feel unsafe and unsecure. And so if you were me, if you lived in my body, and you felt what living in my body felt like. If you lived in my life and you felt what my life felt like, and you were to use, what you would notice is that that use looked and felt exactly like self-care. It's misguided, but that's what it is. Addiction is misguided self-care. All of a sudden, it seemed like I'd somehow been able to solve everything that made my life feel like a place I didn't want to be present for. And let me be honest with you, it worked. It, it worked phenomenally well. I lost the weight. I made tons of friends. I had girlfriends. My relationship with my dad got better. By the time I was a senior in, in high school, I had received a, a full scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. I mean, you could not convince me that this was not a good thing to do. There's no way you could say, Adam, you need to stop this because it will be a good thing for you. You don't know what my life felt like before I had it. So there's no way you could tell me with certainty that I'm wrong for feeling the way that I felt. Unfortunately, I'm no different than anyone else. And the typical trajectory of substance use into substance abuse is the exact trajectory that I was moving towards. By the time I was in college, more was not enough. And not enough was all the time. How much do I have left? How, where am I going to get more? How much is it going to cost? Where am I going to get the money to pay for it? Where am I going to get the drugs? How much drugs do I have left? How much drugs do I have left? How much drugs do I have left? It's all I could think about. I dropped out of college. I dropped out of college. I moved back to Austin, told my parents because I wanted to, you know, just take a year off, maybe do some work. But all I wanted to do was move back to a city where I knew all the dealers and I knew the doctors that I could scam. And that is exactly what I started doing. I was doctor shopping, multiple doctors prescribing the same medication without them knowing about it. It's a felony. I was forging prescriptions. I was buying and selling drugs on the street. I was stealing from people. I mean, I would do anything to anyone in order to get what I needed because the only thing that mattered was not being present. I just did not want to feel like I was treating my family like absolute garbage. And by the time I was about 28 years old, I was nearly broke. Um, I had lost jobs left and right. I was, I weighed over 300 pounds. And my dad, who believed me, I, I did, I only engaged with my parents for two reasons. One, to treat them like shit, or two, to ask them for money. That's the only reason I ever saw them. And my dad shows up and he says, hey, Adam, listen, um, I, I'm not here. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm, I, I just want to talk. Um, Whole Foods Market, my dad's been a part of Whole Foods Market since the founding. Whole Foods Market has, has partnered with a guy named Rip Esselstyn. 
and what we have decided to do is we're, we're going to create these seven day retreats where people can go and they can learn how to live this. It's called a plant-based diet. And apparently, you know, it's really effective at helping you, you know, lose weight and feel strong and feel good. And, and what I think is, you know, if you just go to this thing and you see a little bit of success, if after these seven days, you can feel a little bit of success, it might inspire you to, to and be motivated to, to change a little bit more about your life. And he goes, and, and, and all I want you to do is go. That's it. You know, you, you don't have to promise me anything. And I said to him, that sounds like a great idea. What I was thinking in my mind was, I don't give a shit about a plant-based diet. I don't know what one, one is. I don't want to know what one is. I don't know who this Rip Esselstyn is. I don't want to know who he is. What I know I can do is if I can convince my dad and this guy Rip that I care enough about this, that I'm, I'm curious enough about this, I could get my dad to keep giving me money for a year. That was the con. Let me figure out a way to, to just convince my dad that I really care about this thing and then say, hey, if I'm going to do it well, I, I'm going to need you to pay my rent. And in fact, I had to go down to the headquarters of Whole Foods because that's where Rip's office was at the time. And I had to convince him to let me uh, have a spot because at the time it was only open for Whole Foods Market team members. And, and you know, I did what what every person who deals with substance use disorder does really well. I lied. I even told him, yeah, you know, I read a little bit about your book. I think it's really cool. And, and I'm going to finish it. But, you know, I'd really like to learn more from you guys. And please, you know, just give me a shot. Of course, he lets me come and I show up high. I was high out of my mind when I showed up. In fact, they do these biometrics at the time. They do your weight and your blood pressure and all this stuff when you get there. And, and I was so high on amphetamines that my blood pressure, uh, they thought the, the, the meter was broken because it read like 210 over 130. And I just said, hey, listen, let me just run to the bathroom. I'll be back. And I just never came back to do the biometrics. And uh, I was very diaphoretic. My face was flushed red. I would sweat through about three shirts a day. I felt very, I was a very toxic person. I smelled terribly because I, I lived like a hoarder. I wasn't showering for like months at a time. And in fact, my, my appearance and my presence was so disruptive to the staff that there were conversations about whether I should be removed. And listen, I, I don't know what all was said in those meetings about me. I mean, I'm sure that they weren't they weren't trying to be mean or rude, but what I what I'm very confident about is that the reason why I wasn't asked to leave is because I'll bet my entire life savings that Rip said, I'm not asking the person who needs it the most to leave. And um, I went to every lecture. I listened to everything that was being said. And in fact, a lot of it made sense. And I wish I could tell you that after living there for seven days, listening to these thought leaders, these luminary doctors and inspiring individuals talk about a plant-based lifestyle that, that I left and just changed my life. But the reality is as attractive as it was and as convincing as it was, I wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be on the gamble that this plant-based diet would work for me in a year. That was just way too extraordinary of an effort for me to even consider. And so what I did is I left and I grabbed a hold of my drug use even harder until August 21st of 2012. I was 30 years old. I weighed nearly 350 pounds. I had undiagnosed diabetes and heart disease. I had erectile dysfunction for reasons I didn't understand. I had infected cuts on my legs from scratching mosquito bites that wouldn't heal for reasons I didn't understand. Living hurt. 
in every sense of the word, physically, spiritually, emotionally. I was socially broke. I was, I was purposely broke. I was financially broke. I was spiritually broke. And I was practicing self-harm on a daily basis. I would go into my bathroom, I'd take off my shirt, I'd stand in front of the mirror, and I would just beat myself as hard as I could. I just hit myself over and over and over again. And every time I'd hit myself, I'd, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, you're worthless, I hate you, you're a piece of shit. And my thought was, God, you know, if I could just, if I could just hate my life enough, and if my life could just hurt enough, maybe I'd finally want to change my life. The only thing that would ever occur as a result of that effort was I was I would end up on the floor of my bathroom, swollen, bruised, bleeding, crying, feeling more disconnected from the possibility of ever being a part of something meaningful ever again. And I didn't write a note. Uh, I didn't even have a plan. I had been battling suicidal thoughts for a while, but this wasn't something I decided to put into action. 2 a.m. sitting on my couch. And I just think to myself, every single day that I'm alive is the worst day of my life. And tomorrow is always going to be worse. And if that's where you live long enough, eventually tomorrow is not somewhere you're willing to be a part of. And so I tried to end my life by intentional overdose. Grabbed a handful of pills, I threw them down my throat. And now I've been abusing substances for over 10 years and I'd had minor overdoses before. Uh, this felt distinctly different. I can remember I was sitting on my couch, feeling this kind of odd sensation. And I tried to, I, I tried to kind of lean forward to stand up thinking, you know, let me just shake this off. And as I did, as I tried to stand up, my entire right side of my body cramped and it felt like I got stabbed in the right side with a hot knife. And I stumble forward, my vision goes black really quickly. And now the feeling that I had, and I don't mean the physical description that I laid out, I'm talking about the feeling that I had in that moment. Um, I cannot explain to you how terrifying that is. And I, I will tell you this, I don't know what it feels like to die, but I know exactly what it feels like to believe that you're dying with a life full of regret. And that is not a place you ever wanna be. I woke up a few hours later in a puddle of vomit in a pile of fast food garbage surrounded by empty pill bottles in the dark. And after I realized what had taken place, I was flooded with unbelievable relief. And that relief that was just so ever present really caused me to pause and consider what had just taken place. Because I thought I didn't want my life to go on. But that relief that I was feeling was only possible if there was something about myself and my, and my life that I loved enough. Something about myself and my life that was so important, so meaningful, that even though this was going to be the hardest day of my life, I was relieved that I was still a part of it. And believe me, I know you know this person because I was that guy. I was that guy that if you were a friend of mine and you loved me, if you're a family member of mine and you love me, at some point you would have come up to me and you said, Adam, what are you doing? Don't you see what's happening? Why won't you stop all of this? And I would have looked you in the eye and I would have said, man, F you. You have no idea what my life feels like. You have no idea how hard my life is. And you have no idea 
the relief I experience for a couple hours when I use. So unless you're going to solve my problems for me today, unless you're coming to make my life better, this is how I do life. And if doing life this way cost me 10 years, fine. I'm fine with it. And I really do think about that because I cannot tell you how many times I said it, I thought it, if it cost me 10 years, so what? If I had been successful on August 21st of, t- of 2012, what would my family not give up for 10 more years with me? What would they not give up for 10 more months with me? Uh, I've lost six friends to suicide and overdose, and I don't know one thing that I have that I wouldn't give up for 10 more minutes with them. The things that we choose to believe have consequences, but those consequences aren't just on us. A lot of them are on the people that we care about. I I decided, just pick up the phone, call your parents, don't let them say a word, just say, I need help. It's exactly what I did. And two weeks later, I checked into rehab with their help. And rehab is a very difficult experience, especially the first five to 12 days when you're in the detox. When you check in, you're strip searched. They search your belongings. They do these you know, physical examinations on you, all of which feel very dehumanizing. And I felt like a criminal. And certainly as a person who had been very detached from feeling like his body was something he cared about or loved, To stand naked in front of doctors and have them do physical examinations was a very humiliating experience for me. But it's important. It's important because what they're trying to do is they're trying to care for you. Didn't feel like it at the time, but believe me, they search your things because they don't want you bringing drugs in. If I could have, I would have. I was high when I checked in. They do physical examinations to find out, you know, people who use, who do substance use or have substance use disorder, They engage in other behaviors that can put their health at risk. And so they're trying to find out how can we best take care of you? They do psychological evaluations and emotional evaluations because they want to know how to best take care of you. And that's when I found out after 72 hours that I had very advanced diabetes. My fasting blood glucose was 390 and my A1C was a 12. I had very high cholesterol. It was over 300. My blood pressure was astronomical. My resting heart rate was about 118. Um, and then diagnosed me with a whole host of psychological conditions. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office, across the table from the doctor, him, him saying this to me, Adam, look, your diabetes is so advanced and your obesity is, is class three. It's a very real likelihood that you could lose your sight to a certain degree, your hearing, there's a possibility for amputation. Your cholesterol is so high, your blood pressure is so high and because of your class three obesity, there's a re- very real chance you're gonna have a heart attack. Uh, you're likely always gonna be overweight, you're always going to be depressed and anxious. There's nothing you can do about that. We're going to give you medication to, to take care of it. But Adam, if you want your life to get better, you have to stop using drugs. And I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute. I know what my life feels like when I don't use. And that's why I use. And you're trying to tell me that my life's going to get better when you literally just told me my future is a place I have no interest in being a part of. How in the world is abstinence the solution here? I didn't have any authority to believe differently, but for whatever reason, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I'd spent the better part of the next week trying to figure out what am I going to do? And I realized what I have to do is I have to reverse engineer the experience of being meaningfully alive. What I wanted to do was be the architect of a life that felt like such a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. Be the architect of a future that made sense and felt like somewhere I'd like to be a part of. And if I could do those two things, 
use would be no longer necessary. So I said, look, I don't know anything about addiction or mental illness, but one thing I do know how to do really well is eat. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to change what I choose to eat. I'm going to mimic what I learned at the plant-based retreat. And I moved into a sober living facility after 37 days of rehab. And I put that to work. And as a result of that, within four months, my diabetes and my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction were completely reversed. Within 10 months, I lost over hundred pounds. Within one year, I was off of all of my psych meds. Everything I was prescribed in rehab was taken away. I checked in the, to rehab the most sick, disconnected I've ever been in my life. And I left one year later, the healthiest and most connected I've ever been in my entire life. I've now had uh, 11 years of continuous active recovery. And um, I've lost about 175 pounds, but that's that's just clickbait stuff. That's the before and after photo stuff. That's not profound change. Profound change looks like this. Profound change is realizing that somebody convinced me that my body is my adversary. At some point in my life, somebody convinced me that my body does not have my best interests at heart. But you wanna know what convinced me otherwise? Surviving suicide. Surviving suicide was my body's ultimate expression of, we are never giving up on you. You may believe differently, but we've been fighting for you since the day you were born. We're the greatest ally you'll ever have in your life. If you really wanna do well in this life, if you really wanna guide yourself in the right direction, stop restricting, stop abstaining, become a caretaker of a body whose entire purpose for existing is to make sure you survive to tomorrow as well as possible. Become a caretaker of a body that when you wake up into it, gives you the opportunity to see, feel, and move through your life. Take care of this gift that you have be very clear on what are the choices that give your body the best opportunity for you to show up into your life and do it the way you would like to do it. Profound change is waking up into a life where all of a sudden I've got 10 friends on my favorites list on my phone that if I call them, they'll answer the phone today. They'll do that because they want to be a part of my life. They'll do that because I have become a meaningful part of the goings-on of their life, and they're a meaningful part of the goings-on of mine. We wake up and want each other to be around. Profound change is meeting a woman in March, I'm sorry, in May of 2020. Uh, her name is Dr. Laura Gouge, uh, thinking she's the most beautiful woman in the world, and then marrying her in December of 2022. To have someone look at you, meet you, learn about you. And to go from a place where you hated yourself so much that you considered life not being a place you want to be a part of, to now standing in front of someone so incredible and listening to, this, to them say, I want to partner my life with you. I want to wake up every single day and say yes to you for the rest of my life. That's profound change. And I cannot believe that I almost tried to end my own life before the best part of my life ever began. Um, you know, I, I now have, have dedicated my, my life to helping people understand the reality of what addiction, anxiety, depression, what are these things, what are they really, what's really taking place? Uh, helping people use nutrition um, in order to, as a tool for being the architect of a life that feels safe, secure, and hopeful. Um, and it, it's, it's just been my greatest pleasure 
to run a study that investigated the effects of nutrition on addiction recovery outcomes, and to be a part of a community that is trying to organize itself behind giving people the ease and repeatability for change. So yeah, that's kind of my story. And it's it's an incredible story at that. And uh, I'm so grateful that you you went into such detail and, and candor because um, it really is a story of that that I think a lot of people can can connect to different parts of it yeah. and can drive some sense of hope, uh, you know, an inspiration for change. Um, so thank you. You you are an inspiration in what you do every day. So. Oh, yeah, you know, it's hard to to follow that, but I, uh, you know, we could end the podcast here. No, I wouldn't keep talking. I think it would be one of our better, <laughs> no, it'd be one of our better ones because truly I think that just that story alone can can stand as such a lesson. Um, but I know through our conversations that you also have a a deep and nuanced understanding of these different remedies and, and kind of philosophies in terms of treating and reversing addiction and finding that that life that is full you know uh safe secure and and hopeful right i think i got your your phrase correct um so so i'm curious because i think just as a jumping off point your philosophy which i resonate deeply with um uh stands kind of in contrast to a typical abstinence based philosophy that has been around for you know if you think about aa right and like it's all about just in a lot of ways willpower um you know just showing up to meetings and counting those days and and having that date that you're sober from and 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 yours um you know i think uh like i say we went into some of those you you know different philosophers if you will you know johan hari and gabor mate and i know you've included a little bit of doug lyle um and and created something really interesting so take it at any point but just to give people more of a a pragmatic approach to, to identifying some things in their life that maybe they can start to Ten wine. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy. Yes. So what, what the traditional story of addiction uh, tells us is that there are some people who are addicts and there are some people who aren't. And what happens is if you happen to have been born uh, an addict, uh, as soon as you use the, the chemical hooks in, in that substance will, will grab a hold of you and, and you won't be able to stop using. And, and, and so the story around that, the, the obvious treatment for that is abstinence. Well, if the problem is that you used, you just have to stop using. Uh, the problem with that narrative is that, unfortunately, when you, when you sit with people who are struggling with addiction, you'll recognize that what you observe is not that story. And in fact, there's a lot of ways that we can go about kind of breaking that story down and to show how it doesn't work. Um, let's take, for example, why I think, what's a much better explanation for uh, substance use disorder. So there's actually, there was a great study that was done uh, and they were trying to look at determining whether some people were dopamine seekers and some people weren't, whether some people had an innate willpower and some people didn't. And you've probably heard of this study. It was done on children. It's called the marshmallow study. What they did was they put kids into a room one at a time. They would give them a marshmallow and they said, here, you can have this one now. However, if you were to wait one hour, we'll be back with two marshmallows. So you can have more if you're willing to wait. And they came back and the ones who waited, they got the marshmallow and the ones who didn't wait, they didn't. And they go, here we go. 
these kids innately have willpower. They're going to be much better off. They're likely not to become addicts because there's something in their genetics that made them able to do that. Well, there's a follow-up study to this. What they did was they took a group of kids and they gave them first two crayons. And they said, here's two crayons. If you wait one hour, we'll be back with a whole box of crayons. They came back. The ones who, who drew uh, didn't get it. The ones who just waited would get a whole box of crayons. And uh, they come back, the ones who didn't start drawing, the ones who waited for the whole box of crayons, they took them and they made a separate group out of them. The ones that waited, they gave half of them a box of crayons and the other half, they didn't. And then they ran that marshmallow study on that entire group. And what they realized was the ones that were given the box of crayons waited and the ones who weren't given the box of crayons didn't wait. And the only difference between a group that just before had been demonstrated that they are genetically better in terms of willpower, the reason why they didn't wait the second time is because distrust had now become a predictable part of their future. And some would say, as a result of that lie, it now harmed their willpower. But if we were to actually look at what's taking place is that they had adapted behavior to statistically get resources that they don't perceive are gonna be coming in the future. So that behavior adaptation makes complete sense. This is exactly what we're gonna see taking place. And so if we look at the environment as a factor of determining behavior, we can start to see what's taking place around substance use disorder. I think that there's about four or five meaningful and loving bonds that give us the sense that our life is something that we actively wanna show up and be present for, and gives us a sense that our future is something that we wanna to get to. And those are this a loving and meaningful bond with ourselves, both physically and emotionally, that we want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with people in our lives that we want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with a purpose, meaningful work that we could share within a community of shared respect that we want to be a part of every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with the natural world and a future that makes sense that we want to work for every single day. Now, when these loving and meaningful bonds are connected, there's a very real desire to show up and be fully present in your life. The more we sever of these meaningful bonds, the more likely we are to make a very honest and, and appropriate behavioral adaptation to how difficult our life is. And when you introduce a supernormal stimulus, like heroin, like cocaine, like Adderall, like alcohol, and that supernormal stimulus hijacks your dopamine guidance system, gives you a sense that somehow this life that doesn't feel successful now feels successful, you're gonna bond with that substance for dear life. I'll give you an example. Doug Lyle uses this example. Let's say you go outside and you were to leave your porch light on. What you're gonna notice is that there are moths and they're attracted to the light. And they're attracted to the light because they are designed by nature to use the brightest lights in the sky, celestial objects for navigation. They have a guidance system that helps them figure out what's the right move to make. But when the brightest light in the sky is now your porch light, that guidance system is now fooled. It hits the light, it flutters down, it hits it again, hits it again, hits it again, and eventually it's gonna die. Now from the outside looking on, if we were to observe this, we might say something like this. Wow, there's something wrong with its psychology. Something must be going terribly wrong with that moth psychology. Why in the world would it keep making this mistake until it died? But what you have to, to do is pause and consider from a subjective point of view, it's actually taking place inside the animal's mind, is that he's thinking and feeling like he's doing the exact right thing when in fact he's self-destructive. 
by introducing a supernormal stimulus, a stimulus that was never supposed to be in the environment. Within an environment that is not representative of this animal's natural history, natural behavior, that animal will always run the threat of making that decision, potentially a fatal decision, thinking and feeling like it's a good thing to do. Now, let's take that porch light and make it drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. Let's put it into the environment of people. Now let's look at who is attracted to that light. Technically everyone is, you can't not be. It's designed to be attractive, but who's compulsively seeking that behavior over and over and over again? What we're gonna notice is the ones who are seeking that uh, behavior over and over, over again are the ones who need it in order to feel like life makes sense. To them, it looks like the most beautiful thing in the world. To individuals who have a meaningful, connected, bonded life, it looks like a pretty thing to look at every once in a while. And they might do it. it. might be a convivial experience. Who knows? But they won't keep seeking it out in such a compulsory way. In fact, there was a phenomenal study uh, done by Professor Bruce Alexander in the 1970s called Rat Park. You heard about this? So the study- no, goes, I don't think so. So the study goes this. Um, they looked at the rat in a cage model. Rat in a cage model was- Oh, rat, rat park. Yeah. Yeah. Putting a rat in a cage and you give it- Please, please go on. Yeah. You give it food or drugs. And once it discovers drugs, it's going to do the drugs until it dies. And they go, there you go. That's addiction. The chemical hooks uh, got into that rat. It couldn't stop using and it died. Professor Bruce Alexander looks at it and he goes, hang on a second. You put a rat in an empty cage. It has nothing to do but food or drugs. That cage looks nothing like the meaningful goings on of a rat. While it may not be the same type of meaningful experience that we have, it's still meaningful experience to them. So he designed Rat Park, which is essentially heaven for rats. Uh, it had everything, it kind of mimicked everything of a meaningful experience of what a rat needs to do in order to feel successful in his life. And then he introduced cocaine. And what he noticed was in Rat Park, none of, the ads, none of the rats ever really used the cocaine. None of them ever did it compulsively and none of them ever overdosed. So the question then becomes, is addiction an adaptation to the substance or is it an adaptation to your cage? Does the use and the abuse of use make sense? I like to ask the question, I tell people to ask the question, instead of asking someone, why won't you stop? A much more valuable question is, why does your use make so much sense to you? Why, if I were you, and if my life looked and felt like yours, why would I likely be doing the exact same thing? Addiction is far less a disease process playing out than it is a behavioral adaptation to a life that doesn't feel like a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. Addiction makes much more sense, far more sense from that perspective than it does that some are addicts and some are not. If a person comes into rehab today, checks in and says, I'm a heroin addict, and their response is, we know what your problem is. Your problem is heroin. What you're telling that person is that their pain means nothing. That in fact, everything about your life that, that's painful is not a factor in why you use, and therefore what you love is irrelevant. That is a dangerous message to send to somebody. Uh, that is a very harmful message to say to somebody. Because inside of that person's mind, when he looks, thinks about his life, the reason why he's using is because he is suffering from an inability to be present for the things that matter the most to him. I tell people this, what I think addiction, what I think addiction recovery really is, is two things. Number one, it's the intentional and appropriate reorganization of your life priorities and values so that use becomes no longer necessary. If you want to put that in a much more poetic sense, 
Recovery is the practice of remembering who you've been before the world convinced you differently. I think that's what recovery actually is. Recovery should not be in the singular pursuit of abstinence. And to be fair, I don't think everybody needs to be completely abstinent in order to consider themselves recovered. The intent of the use, the, the place that it finds that you, that you put it into your life, how much it might displace your ability to be healthy and be present for your life, those are factors that need to be considered. But I think that what we're actually seeking here is number one, how and why did your life become such a place where being alive in your life is not doable without substances? If we answer that question, we know exactly what to change. If you're told the story that it's because of the drugs, we only know what to remove. That's it. That's a problem. Yeah. It's such an amazing, it, I was thinking to myself as you describing, you know, the heroin addict. And of course we can apply this to much more or, or I should say relatively more benign addictions, right? Like we, we see every single day, whether it's to food or other compulsive behaviors or, you know, wine, right? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of flavors of addiction. I think what you're sharing um, can be so impactful for all those different flavors. And what it reminds me of is, as you just used the example of someone on heroin um, but let's just take your your friend, your neighbor who maybe has a few beers at night and it's a casual thing, but it's every single day. And you ask yourself, like, what what is that person treating? Right. And and it, it makes me kind of uh, extend an analogy. What we always talk about with regards to plant based nutrition right, is that the mainstream medical system is all about treating symptoms. Right? It's mm -hmm. all about putting a Band-Aid on the bleeding cut okay. as opposed to asking yourself, why do you have the cut in the first place, right? Why or, do you keep cutting you yourself? Know, probably more... Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to, to, <laughs> to go to self-harm in that way, but, but that's exactly it, right? Or, or you know, a more likely or a more common analogy maybe is, you know, you have high cholesterol. Here's a, a statin. Here's a cholesterol-lowering medication to lower the cholesterol and no one takes a step back and says, why is the cholesterol high to begin with? What behaviors are leading to that symptom, right? What cause yeah. can we address up front? And it's the exact same thing that your philosophy is now extending to these more addictive or, or substance abuse. You know, my, my uh, language maybe isn't as precise as yours in this domain, but I think it's exactly the right way to think about it. Right. It's that, you know the the uh, the substance right whatever it is that warm blanket that you're you're seeking is in itself treating some sort of symptom yeah right it is a solution and i think that's one of the things that was so um so revelatory to hear you say is like addiction is a solution to something yeah right? so like now we have to kind of unwind it and look at the the cause if you think about it every instinct in you has been honed throughout the history of our evolution to help you figure out what's the right move to make in, in, in your environment in order to survive to tomorrow. Like that's why you have the instincts that you have is to survive to tomorrow. Your survival instincts don't care about you living to 80. Your survival instincts do not care if you make it to 80. Your survival instincts only care about you making it to tomorrow. Very big difference between longevity and survival. We do not have longevity instincts. None of us do. We only have survival instincts. That's all we have. So if you think about 
How do we know what move to make? How do our instincts guide us towards behaviors? What's the guidance system, the mechanism that helps our instincts determine which is the right move to make? It's dopamine. Dopamine is the internal guidance system that helps us figure out what's the right move to make. But you have to understand our brain is, our, our primal instinctual brain is still 10,000 years old. And it has not evolved beyond 10,000 years ago. It takes quite a long time for your primal instincts to evolve to adapt to an environment. And if we were to go back 10,000 years ago and we were to see what the world looked like, we'd notice one very specific thing, that the environment is incredibly scarce, incredibly competitive, and incredibly dangerous. The things that we need in order to survive are scarce. There's not a lot of them. There's a lot of other people and things that are looking for those resources. So now it's scarce and competitive. And a lot of those other things and people are harmful to us. So now it's scarce, competitive, and dangerous. So we have to be efficient. There has to be some kind of mechanism in, internally that helps us figure out without being able to Google it, what's the better move to make? Dopamine lets us know what to do. We have a psychology and a motivational architecture that helps us figure out how to get more for less. The greater the dopamine response, the greater the likelihood that that behavior helps us get to tomorrow better than the one next to us. When we don't feel successful, finding a dopamine triggering behavior has always given us a sense that tomorrow is taken care of. Now you go into the modern environment, incredible shift in the environment as a whole, resources, both physical and caloric resources, social resources have completely changed. Uh, we're now not comparing ourselves to 10 people a day. We're comparing ourselves to a million. So there's a huge shift in, uh, in the environment that our psychology and our motivational system is not adapted to. And so if your life isn't going well, if your life doesn't feel like a safe place to be, and you find a stimulus like heroin that skyrockets your dopamine, your internal guidance system to a level never experienced in human history, what you're going to feel like is you're not quite sure, but somehow tomorrow is a safe place to be magically right. with ease and repeatability. If things are going terribly, if you just do this, it will feel as if everything is taken care of and every instinct in you is looking for that feeling. So the use is completely called for from a, from a motivational standpoint, right? What is happening is there's not a single instinct in you that is designed for self-destruction. Not a single instinct in you. People say it's self-destructive behavior. It's not. To the person watching, that's what it looks like. To the person doing it, it is not at all what it looks like. What it looks like is self-preservation. Very misguided self-preservation, but that's what it looks and feels like. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And I love I love the idea that tomorrow is taken care of, right? Because yeah. if you just, just to double down to try to make it uh, even more clear for, for someone watching... You know, if 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 we're living in an environment of scarcity on the Sahara, right, and you find this jackpot of food, right, and it hits all those brain chemicals, yep. tomorrow's taken care of, right? Yep. And yeah. so now transplant that to drugs or alcohol, and you know, you, you start to understand why that makes sense. There's also something else going on. We typically have a very great balance between our short-term, intermediate, and long-term courses of action. So let's say, for example, we were in the desert, right? When we're in the desert, we know that at any given time, about 100 yards away, there is some animal that's trying to kill us. There's some rival village or something. Like that. <laughs> and we just know this is what we think, right? And we, we come across some food, right? And the food is our natural food environment. The caloric intake is just right. It's good enough for us to say, hey, that tastes good. I'll eat it when I'm hungry. 
and I'll leave it alone when I'm stuffed, right? That's a good, like kind of hits right in the sweet spot. We're eating it and we're noticing that the other tribe is getting closer and closer and closer. At a certain point, the risk of death becomes greater than the pleasure that we get from the food. And so we walk away. But now let's concentrate that food 10, 20, 30 X. We've never experienced it before. We're biting it and we go, holy shit, this is incredible. The other village is coming closer. They're coming to harm us. And we go, I know I should leave. Just I, This is too good to pass up just a little bit more. What's happening is we've now disintegrated the balance between short-term, intermediate, and long-term courses of action. We now no longer would ha- care about what happens in an hour if I can just get one more minute here. That is exactly what's taking place with drug use. What happens in five years is completely irrelevant to us for two reasons. One, this is so good. It literally disintegrates that cost-benefit analysis of short-term, intermediate, and long-term course of action. And number two, if you're at the point where you're compulsively using, five years from now isn't a place you care about anyways. So who cares? You genuinely don't give a shit what happens in five years. Five years is a very unsafe, unsecure, and painful place to be. I'm willing to risk it all for this. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, it actually does. So let's talk about pragmatically, because, you know, I, uh, at various points in my life, I'd say I had an unhealthy relationship to substances. Um, I've had an unhealthy relationship to a lot of things that get, you know, uh, I don't want to use the word, but you can get a high from work, you can get a high from exercise, you can get a high from fasting, you can get a high from cold plunges, you know, you can also get a high from drugs and alcohol, right? So it's like you, you pick your poison. And all of us probably can look inside and say, yeah, I, I have at different points, you know, probably had an unhealthy relationship with that, whatever behavior that got me, like you say, that internal guiding system. Um, but for those who are listening to this and saying to themselves, you know, I drink a few beers at night, you know, uh, it's, it's that one glass of wine, maybe it's two glasses of wine, right? Um, but it's a it, it's a habitual thing. Maybe it's even something you call a crutch. Um, maybe they're coping. Um, and we all know that, again, there are different ways to get your high, <laughs> you know, but exercise, right, um, is a better coping mechanism than using a substance, right, or, or, or using, you know, uh, uh, high, high, highly sugary or high fat foods, right, which, again, hit some of those same triggers, right? Maybe it's social media. So for someone looking inside and saying, well, I'm not addicted to heroin, so I don't have anything to worry about. I I can speak from my own experience um, now that I'm, you know, essentially sober, you know, that looking back and uh, again, I'm I'm privileged to never have had, um, you know, a, a really destructive relationship, but I definitely, you know, used alcohol, especially in my 20s, as a coping mechanism, right? Uh, to deal with the stresses and to check out and to, like you say, it was a solution to something at various mm-hmm. times. And this podcast isn't about me and OCD and everything else, but, but now I've, I've, you know, I've found a, a different set of coping mechanisms, right? Meditation, exercise, great nutrition, family, meaning, purpose, all those things that you talk about. And it is a better, it is a better path. So even, and that's my, that is my my plea for people who say, you know, oh, well, I just drink a few glasses of wine at night. It's not that big of a deal. 
But then they wake up the next morning and they're a little groggy and like there's this little part of them that says there's something, there's a next level that they can get to. Here's my question to you. One, what 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 is your advice as people who say, I don't think I'm an addict. I don't connect deeply with some of these stories that you're you're sharing because I've never tried heroin. Yeah. You know, let's talk about those those folks. And two, you know, again, the paradigm we've set up is that this addiction is a solution to something. And a lot of those people may not know what it is that they are hiding from or what they are trying to solve. What are some of the first questions that they should be asking themselves to identify, you know, that if they're willing to go into that dark space and do that self-exploration? Yeah. So for the individual who is asking themselves, you know, saying, you know, I'm not an addict. I'm not this like, okay, great. And I completely believe you. Um, Number two is uh, to respond to that. If you're, if you're considering, if you're having to say to yourself, well, I shouldn't stop. I'm not an addict. There's the mere fact (laughs) of questioning it might be a reason to pause and consider its place in your life. It might not right now be displacing your ability to truly, you know, show up and care for yourself, but it might be becoming a displacement, right? It might start to become one over time. So if you're considering, gosh, you know, yeah, I may have a, a drink, you know, two, three a night, but I'm not an addict. If, if that's a conversation you're having, if you're making a cost benefit analysis for your use and, and the, the course of your use, if you're saying like, yeah, but you know what I'll do is if it gets worse in five years, I'll stop. If you're, if you're having that conversation, run an experiment. This is what I like to tell people, uh, you know, recovery it, for me was nothing more than a series of 14 day experiments. Or what I did was I tell people like this, you have to really start to appropriately and accurately um, consider what you want your life to look like, right? How do you want to feel when you get up? How do you want to encourage those feelings? Like, how do you want your body to feel? How do you encourage your body to feel that way? Uh, what do you want your social life to feel like? How do you encourage the, your, your social life to look that way? So get very clear, have very clearly defined priorities and values for how you want your life to feel. And then you have to make your environment look like the life you want. You, you, you cannot get up and try to daily outcompete your current environment in the hopes that you'll feel like you want your life the way you want your life to feel. You have to fundamentally shift your environment to look like your goals. So for me, it's not going into that kitchen in my sober living facility that looked like it was stocked by nothing but a bunch of teenagers who watch Nickelodeon commercials. No, I had to very uh, sincerely advocate to have a section of that pantry for my food and for this, so that I could go in and know that the environment had a way of encouraging the behaviors that I wanted. And I needed to make it take as little time and energy in order to do it because I knew that the reward was a lot less, right? A rice and bean bowl has far less calories per bite than a McDonald's cheeseburger. And since the McDonald's cheeseburger takes almost zero time and energy to get it, I'm now out competing a big uh, difference between more for less, right? So my environment has to be able to encourage behaviors with very little time and very little energy. So simple, simple recipes. Simplicity is key. Not the recipes you like the most, the foods you like the most. Have those available. Number two, you have to find a social life that looks like the life you want. You have to be in the presence of people who actively engage in behaviors that look like the life you want to live. 
Now that that's a difficult thing to do. And there's going to be a point where you kind of leave your old friends behind a little bit. You don't have to get rid of them, but you spend less time with them and you're trying to find your new ones. And you haven't quite found them yet. So now you're in this place where you're not quite there yet. And you've left this place. And that that's, that's a difficult place to be. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat it for you here. That that's, this is going to take some extraordinary effort to move from one to the other. But if you can, if you can make your friends look like the life you want, simply being in their presence will make your life feel easier. It will make the new habits seem like the right thing to do because every single one of them, when they do it, it will be an indication that you're doing the right thing. And when you engage in those behaviors in front of them, they'll respond to you by saying, oh, that's how I do life. That's great. It's fantastic. I'm glad that you do it like that. That's how it should be done. Good for you. Fantastic way to go. So if you're if you're trying to experience something, get really clear, design that environment and live there for 14 days. Draw a line in the sand for nothing or no one. Are you going to cross over that line for nothing or no one? Are you going to step over that line? Because what you'd like to find out is what potential exists for me if I live here for two straight weeks. At the end of those two straight weeks, I want you to write a list. What got better and what felt difficult? If what got better is even close to or potentially slightly bigger than what felt difficult, you might now be motivated to run that experiment again. You're just trying to see if I keep living here, do I continue to get similar results? And so what I like to say is this, you have to occupy the mindset of, of an explorer. Uh, Matt, I'm gonna ask you a question here. Um, are you familiar at all with the Apollo mission of 1969? Vaguely. So, so this was the mission where we launched people into space and they landed on the moon for the first time, right? This is quite an unbelievable feat of human ingenuity and, and human, you know, adventurous spirit, right? And it's also a very dangerous thing. That's quite a dangerous thing to do for the first time. Do you know what percentage of the flight time they were on course? I have no idea. 2%. They were on course percent <laughs> of the time. So if you were to look at that data, from just a content standpoint, you go, wow, what an utter failure. They spent 98% of the time going the wrong way. Or you could look at it from the context of the human experience, what was actually taking place. They spent 98% of the time figuring out how to get there safely. They spent 98% of the time course correcting. That's what the first six months of any major lifestyle change looks like. We know where we're going. We know how we'd like to get there. And we're going to spend the next uh, six months trying to get there. And 98% of that time is going to be course correcting. We're going to go, oh, I think this is the right way to go. No, 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 it's like this. No, 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 it's like this. And it's going to, the course corrections are going to get smaller as you get yeah. closer. But if you're waking up every single day looking for the perfect course as an indication of whether you've got it or not, every single day is going to feel like a failure. If you get up every single day and you're excited to find out what's accurate, and equally excited to find out what's inaccurate, you're likely gonna get there the safest way possible. That's what researchers do, that's what explorers do. We're not trying to find out how am I perfect or how am I doing right or how am I doing wrong? How are the systems that we've built getting us there safely or not? That's what we wanna do. So if you can occupy that mindset of, I just wanna find out if this is a good place, if going that direction is a good place and how do I get there safely? That's, that's my kind of analogy for recovery. Yeah. It reminds me of something a mentor told me a long time ago, which is like in sailing, yeah. like if you got to pick the destination, 
right? But like, because you're playing with the wind and you have to adjust your sails, like you're never actually going to go from point one to point B, A to B, right? Instead, you're going to tack back and forth exactly. along this general direction. Exactly. And it also reminds me of my other favorite concept, which is like 1% better. Because yes. like, I often do that, right? Where like, I wake up, you know, I stayed up too late the night before. And so I, I didn't wake up really enough. And so I'm like, I feel already behind schedule. And like, I just, you know, and the whole like day can unravel and you can just be in this like funk, right? Mm-hmm. But like, if you can just focus on like, well, I can't control that. But what I can do is sit down and like meditate. You know, if I, I don't have 45 minutes, but like I, I have 20, like, let's just start there. And then after that, it's like, well, I can still like make this call as great as I can. I can still make that smooth. I can and like just just try to make every day a little bit better, you know, and control what you can as opposed to beating yourself up for what you know you can't control, right? Absolutely. And for to answer your second question, in terms of like investigating, you know, those places, I, I always go back to that list of loving and meaningful bonds, right? So your a relationship with yourself, physically and emotionally, relationship to other people. Uh, relationship to meaningful work within a community of shared respect, connection to the natural world and your future, right? If 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 three or more of those don't feel fully connected to you, for you, um, considering doing some inner work might be a very, very valuable thing for you to do, right? Because that doesn't mean that you're doing poorly or that your life sucks. What it means is something in your environment and something in your history has disconnected you from what is truly meaningful about being alive. And there, there's a real opportunity that one, if those things are severed, they're not severed per- permanently. You have a real opportunity to reconnect to those meaningful and loving bonds. And if you do that, if you, if you fully reconnect yourself to those loving and meaningful bonds, life will be a place that you are excited to show up and be present for. And I, and I say this because I think that that is the perfect deterrent for substance use disorder. If you were to look at me 12 years ago, there wasn't a single one of those loving and meaningful bonds that was connected. And if you were hanging out with me and mm-hmm. you were to slip, you know, heroin into my drink without me knowing about it, you go, hey, Adam, you know that drink you just had? It had heroin in it. I would have an unbelievable euphoric experience where I would feel relieved from being present in my life. And that relief would feel unbelievably good to me. You feel very successful to not be present with how difficult my life is. And after that experience, if you came up to me and said, hey, Adam, you know, I can get you as much of that as you want. How's that sound? I would say hell yes. How do I do that? Where do I get more? Now, if you were to come to me today and we were hanging out and I had a drink in your house and you said, Adam, hey, you don't know this, but there was heroin in that drink. Here's what would happen. I would have the same euphoric experience. And afterwards you say, Hey, you know, how was that? I'd say, yeah, it felt amazing. You go, do you want more? I go, yeah, I mean, I do, but I, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to take anymore because if I do that, I can't be present for my life. It can't not feel attractive, right? It can't. It is designed to feel attractive to your motivational system. It literally hijacks your motivational system into feeling like it's a very good thing to do. The number one reason why someone might choose to do it compulsively and the other one won't is determined by how connected they are to the meaningful bonds that give us the experience of feeling like life is a place we want to be present for. If your life is connected, you're less likely to engage in things that disconnect you from your life. If your life is disconnected, you're more likely to be attracted to things that don't let you be aware of how disconnected you are to your life. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's something that resonates deeply with me. Um, I want to be respectful of your schedule. Sure. So I know we have to wrap up, but it really struck me. Five, four out of five of those make a lot of sense to me. You know, relationship with the self, yeah. your family, your your work and environment of mutual respect. And then the fifth, if I'm not mistaken, uh, your future, right? Um, so those all make sense. They're, they're relationships with people, right? Uh, including yourself, present and future. And then you've got nature in there, which actually yeah. struck me as kind of the, what, this thing is not like the others, yeah, right? But it reminds me of like the head of the Harvard study on happiness, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. You know, he recently brought up that um, making yourself feel small, like getting yourself in front of awe, right? Um, and nature is a great place to do that. And recognizing like just the, the impermanence, but also like just it's, it's that, uh, um, what is it called? Uh, co- cosmic, these uh, um, uh, cosmic uh, insignificance therapy or something like that, where like you just, <laughs> when you put yourself in, in the context of the cosmos, right? Like literally oh, just the, incre- I mean, like if you look at that zooming out, we've all seen these, like, you know, it zooms out from you into like the park, into the country, into the world, into like, and it just keeps going like through yeah. galaxies and like it just and you oh, realize yeah. wow we are we are so small it can make everything so anyway i just it, it struck me as something i should ask you about what what yeah. is the relationship to nature oh, a few things there is a, uh, a a field of study called biophilia and biophilia is the biological response we have to different landscapes right so we are in, by nature uh, have a very biophysical response to greenery and, and blue colors. They make us feel safe. They actually change our, our biorhythms. We, our blood pressure goes down, our anxiety goes down. And the reason for that is when we were earth, when we were nature connected, when we existed in environments of scarcity, if we saw the colors green and blue, we knew that there's likely shelter, there's likely food and there's likely water. So to be very attracted, to feel safe in those is a good thing. Uh, the other thing is, uh, in fact, what you said, awe. The experience of awe is a very important experience. In fact, the, the, the feeling of awe is something that I like to call the feeling of aliveness. Uh, the reason why is because there is an immediacy that draws every sense to attention. When you stand in awe of something, you are fully present to whatever it is. The sound of it, the smell of it, perhaps the taste of it, the look of it. All of these senses are keenly focused on whatever it is, and you are nowhere but there. You are standing in awe of life for the moment, and you cannot be distracted by it. You cannot be distracted from it. That's an incredible thing to have happen, and it's an important thing to have happen. That's why we have the thinking and the feeling that we do when it happens. The other thing I like to say is we have to remember that as a species, we have been animals in nature without language longer than we have been animals out of it with language. And I don't think that it is, I don't think that it is possible to be a truly fully present and connected human, unless we are spending a significant amount of our time in nature. Does that make sense? This is a personal feeling I have. Um, I know we all want to sit in rooms and have talks with our therapists and we should, they're valuable. But language is is one part of how we 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 understand our place in the world. We we have to be 
connected to where we have spent the majority of our time, which is in nature, not talking. Uh, I think that that's really important. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's that's really what it what it has what it what why I put it in there. And in this world, I think um, having people spend more time in nature and less time talking are, are two things that a lot of people would agree with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, Adam, as we as we uh, wrap up and run out of time, um, first of all, again, thank you so much for for sharing your your journey with us so candidly, and also sharing your your wisdom. So much of this rings true to me, and I'm excited to to share it with a lot of people in my own life. Um, where can people find and connect with you if they want to uh, learn more about your work or ask you questions directly? Yeah, so you can uh, go to my website, adamsud.com. You can send me an email through there. You can even book a free discovery call, a consult call with me. Um, if you're if you're interested in me, like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd really love to learn more about uh, how he works as a behavior change expert, uh, how he works with people who are struggling with anxiety and depression as a behavior change expert. You can book a discovery call with me through there. Um, you can also book me as a speaker through my website. So if you're hosting an event, you'd like me to come and share my story and and uh, and, and and give lectures or talks on the subject of addiction behavior change, you can book me through there as well. And you can find me on Instagram at plant-based awesome. addict. So yeah. Um, very cool. And uh, you share great content on Instagram. So I encourage people at a minimum to to add your um, your feed to theirs. Because uh, it's a yeah. great, uh, you know, a great stream of, of positive encouragement that I think we all need more of. Um, if you... I'd just like to ask all of our guests one wrap-up question, which is if if people can only take away one thing, call it a metaphorical billboard that you know hundreds of thousands of people will drive by, a word, a sentence, a message. Some people have very dense paragraphs on the metaphorical billboard, but what's the one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation? So uh, probably if I if I could if I could get people to to do one thing. Um, I, I always like to end uh, my podcast interviews um, with something actually one of my closest friends said. He he passed away. He was a person in recovery. He was amazing. He unfortunately died as a result of complications to surgery. He was a phenomenal uh, person in recovery and an incredible human and, and a very dear friend. And he had a saying uh, that he kind of, that kind of allowed him to guide his life through recovery. And he said, you know, so many people have told me that, you know, the secret to happiness is to just live like it's the last day of your life. Oh, just if you could just just try living like it's the last day of your life. He says, you know, that really doesn't make any sense. If I was to live every day like it was the last day of my life, I wouldn't go to work. I wouldn't do the laundry. I wouldn't go to the grocery store. I wouldn't do a lot of the things that I need to do in order to care for my life. And he said, I have a better idea. If you really want to try, if you really want to be happy, just try meeting, just try treating everyone you meet as if they were living the last day of their life. And uh, I find that to be a very wonderful thing to share with people since he's no longer here to share it with you. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredibly beautiful sentiment. And what a world we would all live in if we could all incorporate that behavior, right? Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, thank you so much, Adam. I, I really appreciate the time, and I know a lot of people are going to benefit from this conversation. So thank you again. My pleasure.